Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here, and if we haven't had an opportunity to meet yet, I would love for you to come and introduce yourself to me after the service. It would be good to get to know one another. And, uh, you know, I just want to say, you know, this is Thanksgiving, and there's so much to be grateful for. And I am grateful for Calvary, my church family, and for all of you, and for all of you who are joining us online. Just, it is so good to be able to have uh, a people that we can call home. We are continuing. It's the last sermon in our series on uh, reconciliation. Next week, oh, there's the power. Next week, we will be starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. But today, uh, we are wrapping this series on reconciliation up. And I want to begin by reading this morning's scripture. It's from Colossians chapter 1. And it is a, a hymn or a poem about Jesus. And it begins in verse 15. And this is such a, uh, a song of praise about how good Jesus is that I think it just invites us to stand together as we read this morning's text. So would you stand with me? If you're able to. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once... You were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is God's word. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. Hmm. Well, ethicist and theologian... Uh, Russell Moore, he recounts the early days after bringing uh, two of his children, two sons, home from an orphanage in Russia after they adopted them. And he says that his sons, they were anxious and fearful and insecure that despite being adopted into this loving family, his sons continued to hide food because they were doubtful that their new par- of their new parents not trusting that they would provide for them. His sons continued to live 
according to their old orphanage mentality. But after some time, Moore and his wife, they knew their boys finally trusted them when they stopped hiding food, that they realized that another meal would be coming and that they wouldn't have to fight over the scraps as they once had. And the better that their sons got to know the new parents and what life was like in their new family, the more they trusted and also understood what had been done. That as a result of being adopted, they were no longer orphans, but they were now family members. And that life in the family, it wasn't just a little bit better than in the orphanage. It was better than they could imagine. And in the passage that we just read this morning, the Apostle Paul, he also wants his readers to understand the same thing about Jesus. That as a result of placing their hope and trust in Christ, they were no longer estranged from God, but now reconciled. And their new life in Christ, it wasn't just a little better than their old, their old lives, but better than they could imagine. You see, what Colossians 1, 15 to 23 tells us is that Jesus, he is supreme. And so is his reconciliation. Over the last four weeks, we have been in this series entitled God's Reconciliation Project. And in the first week of that series, we looked at how at the very beginning of time, at the very beginning of the world, the book of Genesis tells us that we lived in this state of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. Specifically, it's referring to peace in our relationships. And we saw in Genesis how we had this harmony in our relationships, in our relationship with creation and with ourselves, with others, and with God. But the, then humanity rebelled. Rather than living according to the creator God's design, we decided to do things our own way, and the results were terrible. Sin entered the world, and the harmony between all four of those relationships has been fractured, and we have been living with the devastating results of that choice ever since. But the good news of the gospel, and in fact, the overarching message of the entire Bible, is that God is restoring and reconciling all things, all of these relationships, and he's not doing it alone. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5 in that first week where we learned that God's reconciliation project, it begins with him reconciling us and our relationship with him. But then once reconciled, God then enlists us to begin to work on his reconciliation project right alongside of him. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And so through faith in Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven, our relationship with God restored, and then we are given a new mission in life, reconciliation. But despite our blessed circumstances, we can often live as if these things aren't true, as if they're not a reality. We can live like children who, despite being adopted, continue to live as orphans rather than as family members. We can still feel anxious and fearful and insecure about our relationship with God. And rather than participating with him in the reconciliation project, 
We fight over the scraps left over from a trail of broken relationships with ourselves and others and the creation. And the situation that was facing the Christians at Colossae, to whom Paul writes this passage, it was very similar to the one facing us today. You see, they lived in a society that opposed and challenged and belittled their faith in Jesus, much like the secularism of our day scoffs our Christian beliefs. But the Apostle Paul, he writes this magnificent hymn of praise about Christ because he wants them to know Jesus, to know how great he is, that he is far better than they could imagine, that Jesus is supreme, and so is his reconciliation. You see, knowing Jesus and understanding how superior he is and his reconciliation is will help the Colossians to courageously live this new life they have in Christ, not anxious or insecure, not fearful of society's opposition. And he wants to do the same for us. N.T. Wright, he says, that the more that they get to know Jesus and the more they know about Jesus, the more they will understand who the true God is and what he's done and who they are as a result and what it means to live in and for him. So we're going to take a deep dive into this passage that declares Christ's supremacy, what it tells us about God, and what it means for us as people who have faith in him. Now the first thing that Paul says to us in this passage about Jesus is that the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now you might be asking yourself, how can something that's invisible have an image, right? Now, in Paul's days, um, images of gods, they didn't necessarily reflect what they thought gods looked like. Rather, the image that they had held the essence or the characteristics of the deity that they represented. Back in Genesis 1, we read that women and men, they were made in the image of God. So this doesn't mean that we look like God, but it means that by being his image bearers, we have the capacity or the ability to reflect God's characteristics and to do some of God's work. However, God's image in us was severely damaged, though not destroyed, when we rebelled, so we often do not bear the image of God as we should, hence all of the broken relationships. But Jesus was without sin. And Jesus perfectly reflects who God is, what God is like, and what God does. And so you and I discover who God is when we look at Jesus. And so in Christ, we see that God is both creator and redeemer. We see through Jesus that God is full of mercy and love. And when we listen to the words of Jesus, and when we see his actions in the gospel, we see that God is this heavenly father who sends his son to rescue people from the dominion of darkness, and he brings about the reconciliation of all of creation through his death on the cross. John Calvin says that in Christ, God shows us his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power. In short, he shows us his entire self. Paul then goes on to say that Christ is the firstborn over all of creation. Now this title, firstborn, can be easily misunderstood. I myself have two children, Oliver and Theodore. Oliver is the oldest, so he is thus my firstborn. He was created first. And this is what some groups believe about Jesus. Uh, Muslims and Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that 
that this means that he was created first. But this is not what Paul is saying by calling Jesus the firstborn. In fact, it can't be because Paul would be contradicting himself just moments later in verse 16 when he says that in him all things were created. And then in verse 17 he says he is before all things. So rather than referring to birth order, this title firstborn is expressing status. We see something similar taking place in Psalm 89 verse 27, which is written about King David who wasn't the first king of Israel, but God says about him there, and I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And so this is a title of status. So as firstborn over all of creation, Jesus is the most exalted. He is the preeminent, the foremost, the greatest over everything. Jesus is exalted over all all of creation. Verse 16 continues, it says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Now this verse has some pretty staggering claims about Jesus and also astounding implications for you and I. First, by saying that in and through him all things were created, Paul is asserting that not only did Jesus eternally exist before time began, but that he is also responsible for the creation of the entire universe. So according to Paul, we would be okay editing our Bibles in Genesis 1-1 and changing it to say, in the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And that would be entirely theologically true. Now, in Jewish literature, when opposites are listed like this, where Paul does this in this text, when he says things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, this is a way of including those places at their various extremes, but also everything in between. And so everything Jesus is responsible for creating it all. And Paul says that this includes every form of power and authority, everything that guides and influences our lives, whether those are human authorities or divine powers. Jesus created those too. Now we know that not all rulers and authorities use their power for good as Jesus intends them to. We see and feel the impact of corrupt rulers and structures every day on our lives, whether they be economic powers or political authorities or oppressive systems like systemic racism. But because Jesus is Lord over everything, all of these things are subject to him and they will one day have to answer to Jesus for how they use their power. Because they were not only created by him, but Paul says everything was created for him. It was all for him. Now this has implications for you and I, because each one of us find ourselves in various positions of authority with some level of power. And we need to ask ourselves the question, are we using our authority and power, whatever we have, for good as Jesus intends? Are we using it 
for the flourishing of other people? Or are we using it for the good of creation? Because we're also going to have to answer to Jesus one day for how we used our power and authority, for how we used our time and our talents and our money. Because remember, not only were they all created by Jesus, but again, they were created for him. Paul goes on to say in verse 17 that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I remember a pastor that I worked with uh, when he would teach on the flood story, the, the account of Noah back in Genesis 7, he would say that that story is less about God's judgment on the earth, but what happens to the world when society rejects God, and he says, okay, and he begins to withdraw from it. That it all begins to unravel. It's reduced to chaos. Commentator David Garland, he says that Christ is is a kind of divine glue or spiritual gravity that holds creation together. That God did not simply start things off and then withdraw from his creation, but that Christ continues to sustain the whole universe. We used to sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. Then Paul shifts gears. He goes from talking about how Jesus is supreme over all of the original creation and how he made it all to then talking about how Christ is also sovereign over the new creation, the coming creation. He says in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church, and that he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, and so that in everything that he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now when Paul says that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, he is referring to Christ's resurrection. And the resurrection wasn't a new idea to Jews like Paul. You see, the hope of Israel was that was in an event called the Day of the Lord that would happen at the end of time. And on that day, they believed that God's kingdom would come to earth, ushering in a new age where he would renew the creation and that he would resurrect all the righteous and would reestablish his peace, his shalom would come to earth forever. But they never imagined that God would not wait until the end of time to do this. But as we keep seeing, he is better than we imagine. And so is his reconciliation. You see, rather than waiting until the end of time, by coming to earth in his son Jesus, God has already begun restoring this world to himself. He's already made the way for us to be healed in our broken relationships, as verse 20 says, that he did this by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So though we were the ones who betrayed God, his love for us is so great that he was willing to pay the price through Christ's death, making amends on our behalf so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored. And through Christ's resurrection, N.T. Wright says that God has now brought forward the inauguration of the age to come. The age of the resurrection 
He's brought it into the midst of the present age in order that the power of this new age may be unleashed upon the world while there is still time for our world to be saved. Praise God. Just look at how the power of Christ's death and his resurrection are able to save and reconcile. Before, Paul says, before you were alienated from God, you were alone and estranged. And you were enemies in your minds because of your wicked behavior. But now, now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death to present you as holy in his sight. You are holy. You are without any blemish. There's no one to accuse you because you are free from every accusation. That's amazing. What a difference reconciliation makes. We no longer have to be estranged from God, marked by sin, live with guilt. We can be in a right relationship with him. But, Paul says, we do have a part to play. There is something that you and I need to do. We have to trust him. He says in verse 23 that if you continue in your faith, established, firm, and do not move from this hope held out in the gospel, you see, continuing in faith, It may sound that way, but it's not easy. Like those adopted sons I spoke about at the beginning who continued to live as if they were still orphans because they didn't trust their parents, we can also be prone to regressing into old patterns and old ways of life because we can also mistrust God. Our world bombards us with messages that God's not real or if he is, you can't know him. We're told that the Bible is irrelevant, its message outdated, and that Christian beliefs are intolerant. That this can tempt us then to mistrust God, to doubt that he's as good as he says he is, or to doubt that he loves us as much as he does, to doubt that he completely forgives us. But this is why Paul encourages us to continue on in our faith, to be firm in it to not move from the hope that's held out in the gospel, right? Because faith, it's not this one-time decision or event. Faith is all about developing our relationship with God, building trust, knowing him better, seeing that, yes, he is faithful, and yes, he is far better than we ever imagined. Continuing in faith, it not only means growing in our confidence and in our understanding of who God is through Christ, but also in our understanding of who we are in light of being reconciled. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are also adopted. Now into the family of God, we become his children. And this family, it's known as the church or it's known as the body of Christ And the great thing about being a part of a family is that you are, it's a place where you belong or a people you belong to. It's where you feel accepted and safe, where you feel loved and cared for. Being part of God's family also means, though, that we have responsibilities to participate in the family life. So in my family, uh, what that means is we eat meals together. 
We go for family walks, we do family campouts. It also means that there are chores that various family members do around the house. And these things all happen because Andrea and I, we kind of set the tone as the heads of the family. These are the things we care about, and now so do our sons. And as members of this family, they participate in these things too, with various levels of enthusiasm. <laughs> but it is what our family does. And in verse 18, Paul has said that Jesus, he's the head of our body. That he is the head of this family, the church. And that means that he's in charge. That he sets the direction for how our family is going to spend time and the energy that we put into things and what we care about. And throughout this passage, we have seen just how much Jesus cares about reconciliation. And not just reconciliation of people. He cares about reconciliation of all things. You see, he is first over all of creation. For he created all of it through him, in him, and for him. Paul says in verse 20 that God desires to reconcile all things in creation. Verse 23, the gospel has been proclaimed to all people. No, it says, has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And so reconciliation between God's people and God's creation needs to be a priority for God's family. And then Jesus also wants to reconcile all people, right? The Colossians, they were once outside of the family of God, Paul tells them. And this is because they were Gentiles. They weren't Israelites. They weren't part of the people of God. But now that's changed. Now everyone can be reconciled by Christ's death and through faith in him. And this is God's desire, that none should perish, but that all should come to faith in him. And this doesn't only mean just being reconciled with God. It also means he wants us to be reconciled with ourselves and with one another. Jesus demands total reconciliation. Remember, he's reconciling all things. He is supreme, and so is his reconciliation. So as the head of the church, as the head of our family, this means that the church does not exist solely to meet the needs of its members or even to ensure the institutional survival. Rather, we exist to fulfill the redemptive purpose of Jesus. We exist, we live to reconcile. And so how do we then participate in God's reconciliation project? Man, there are a whole host of things and no shortage of ways that we can begin to do this. But I have a few thoughts for us this morning. In her message on reconciliation with ourselves, Sarah said that one of the ways that we can begin to cultivate God's peace or shalom in our lives is by practicing gratitude. She said that gratitude is an attitude of the mind. I love that. Gratitude is an attitude. It just rhymes, right? It's an attitude of the mind that enables us to recognize what is good in our lives. And so since she preached that message, I have made a conscientious effort to be practicing gratitude. And in that time, not only can I say that Sarah is correct, that it has cultivated more peace within myself, but I have noticed that as I express gratitude, not only for things in my life, 
but as I express gratitude to others and for others, that this has also cultivated more peace in my relationships with them. This weekend, we're celebrating Thanksgiving. Is there a more appropriate time than this for us to be practicing gratitude? Perhaps this is also the perfect opportunity for us to try some other reconciliation out, like reconciliation with others or to help other people reconcile. You see, holidays such as this, you know, often we get together uh, with, for fun celebrations with the family members we love. But not only that, they can also be tense gatherings where we find ourselves in close proximity with estranged family members. But the Apostle Paul, he says to us in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says, again in Romans 14, 19, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual affection. And remember, when he's talking about peace, he's not talking about, the, you know, not fighting or just this level of peace where we just don't bring things up, but there's tension filled underneath. He's talking about harmony, being in good relationships, forgiving one another, letting go of old grudges. You see, reconciling with others and building bridges of peace, this is what we are called to do. This is what Jesus, the head of our family, cares about and that we're supposed to care about too. And we're supposed to participate in this, not half-heartedly, but as Paul says, we're supposed to make every effort. It's hard because we know we won't see eye to eye. We know that we are going to have disagreements with one another. When Ray Eldridge came in and spoke to us about reconciliation with others, he talked about how we were made for diversity. But with diversity comes the potential for misunderstandings, and with misunderstandings comes conflict. But to build trust and peace with others in order for us not to be suspicious or distrustful, he said that we need to open our hearts to them. What does it mean to have a posture with an open heart? I think it means to listen well, to believe the best, to see the other person as dearly loved by Christ, as someone that he thought worth dying for, and as someone that he longs for you to be reconciled with. And then finally, I would encourage us on this beautiful long weekend to be able to take time this weekend to give thanks to God for his creation. To remember how he made it good and that he made it for himself, not just for us to enjoy, but that creation, it's his and it's a part of his reconciliation project. Perhaps as we, you know, gather around our tables giving thanks to God for the blessings in our lives, we can also thank him for the creation that he's given us that has housed us and clothed us, transported and fed us at our family gatherings, and we can ask him to help us to not take it for granted, but also would he show us ways in which we can begin to bring peace to the creation as well. I want to invite the worship team to come on up, and would you stand with me, and let's pray.
Father God, we just stand in awe of you with grateful hearts and just amazed at how good you are and how much you loved us. We thank you so much for your glorious son, Jesus, that even the words we read this morning, uh, they are magnificent, and yet you are even greater than that, greater than we could even put into words. And we live in hope and expectation that someday we will be in your presence face to face and we will have all of eternity to just experience and know you more and just to see how great you are, blowing our minds every moment with how good you are. I just pray that some of that would seep into our hearts right now and that we would just be such a thankful people and that that would be the motivation for us to go out and to begin to restore and reconcile with others. This is hard work, God. But we thank you for that you did the hard work for restoring us. That we don't go out as people who are weak or as people who are unable to do this, but we go out with the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, the same one who raised Jesus from the dead to new life, trusting that you can also raise all the dead things in the world, all our relationships that are on life support, that you can bring them back to new life too. And we love you, and we thank you. Thank you so much for your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.